Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Going Deeper podcast. My name is Danny Strange, and I'm the senior pastor here at Three Crosses. If you are a listener of our podcast, we are turning the tables this week because AJ Venegas, our director of life groups and discipleship, preached the Sunday message. So he's in the hot seat answering my questions. So welcome to Going Deeper. First of all, AJ, welcome now to my podcast. How does it feel to be on the other side of the microphone? Oh man, it feels good. It feels good. I'm excited about this passage. I'm excited about some of the things that I've been getting into as I've been meditating on this. And uh, yeah, we'll see how this goes as the tables have turned, as he said. So. I love it. Well, let me dive right in. We're in 1 Peter chapter 2, turning the corner into a new chapter, verses 1 through 3. Let me read it for our audience so they can hear this for themselves. Peter says, therefore... Rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you've tasted that the Lord is good. So AJ, you jumped us into chapter two, turn the pages of First Peter. So help us get our bearings a little bit as we move into this new chapter of the scriptures. What are some general impressions that you picked up from these verses that can help us dive into this chapter a little bit more deeply? Yeah, as you said, we make a transition into chapter two. So if you are still wrestling with chapter one, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to the previous episodes, previous sermons on them. They've been great. They've been uh, great conversation starters as well. Um, but one of the things I wanted to zoom out uh, here at the initial starting point is understanding what exactly we're reading. Because we come to this in a book format with chapters and verses, but it's always helpful to remember that when we come to the scriptures, we're coming to it as a letter, something that was just read just straight through. And so a lot of people have identified uh, chapter 1, verse 13, all the way to chapter 2, verse 10, as one literary unit. And so we did isolate this in our sermon series uh, to you know, focus on what he's talking about here. But it's also really good to remember how we should study our Bibles because you know, the debate about becoming a book, uh, turning all these letters into a book, didn't really happen until like second or third century. And then even then, like the chapters and verses weren't introduced to like the 12th or 13th. So we're still wrestling with that tension and we do lose some things. And I think this is one of them. Um, do we approach these verses as sort of their own independent, independent entity saying like, hey, this is like your growth toward salvation. And then do we move on to like verses four to 10 and talk about, well, community is almost like this add on thing, this supplemental uh, for the super Christian. Or do we look at verses one through five kind of developing the same idea? So in this podcast episode itself, we're going to be talking about how growing and um, community kind of come together and in this beautiful harmony. And I think this goes back to my uh, position for the last four years. I've been director of life groups. It's kind of forced me to put on lenses of how to explain to people why people should get into community. And I think from the very beginning, we see, you know, God creating this garden place that was meant for multiplication. It was meant for more than one person. We see him choosing Abraham saying, hey, I'm going to make you a nation. We see laws that what are they good for except for to govern a group of people all the way to Jesus establishing the gospel of the kingdom and then all the way to the end where like this new Jerusalem, new city is coming. And so it's almost like this framework that is so hard in our westernized 
culture of understanding why it's so important to live in community because you know I go home and I just want to shut the door and be by myself be with my family and it's really hard in this western culture but I think there's something you know as Paul says in Ephesians the manifold wisdom of God of being in a church community and so throughout this episode I want to challenge our listeners to think through the connection between two verses one to three as well as the following verses I love that because when we look at verses one through three in a vacuum It can really just feel like individual stuff that we need to do as individual Christian human beings, right? Even these commands we see at the beginning, rid yourselves of malice and deceit and hypocrisy. It feels like an individual thing that I need to do. Okay, I got some problems with hypocrisy. I got some problems with malice. And so I love that opening our eyes a little bit more to, hey, this might be something that I have responsibility for, but I'm part of a growing community. So that tension between me and the community I love that you brought that out. Yeah, and even last week we talked about this love concept and you know that could be seen as something that I try to do or it could be something that is seen as I got to involve people in my life because I can't love without involving people. Uh, you'll get into the, the conversation about what these are, but a lot of these vices are with people. And so it's just this lens that we have to have on before we approach the scriptures. Well, with that lens, I'm going to bring a question to you now that I'm the question asker here. So hopefully you're ready for it. What I'm noticing as I look at this text is this passage starts with a seeming command, right? He tells us to rid ourselves of various things. And yet, as we look at the different English translations of the Greek New Testament text, we see there's a a decision that has to be made of, is this really a command? Are we supposed to rid ourselves? Or like I look in the NASB or the King James Version, there's this idea of putting aside or laying aside. It feels more like a a participle, like as you do this, do these other things. Can you give us a little insight? Why why are they translated two different ways? How do you read this? What is Peter trying to get our, our minds to wrap around as we look at even the first command as people reading this text? Yeah, so let's just get into the weeds here, into the Greek, because uh, the word there is apothemenoi, and it is a participle, like you said. And the way I learned participles is like it's a verb and it's an adjective, like crashed together like two cars. So it can be used as both. Uh, What's important about a participle is that it usually, it's not the main verb. And so we'll get to the main verb eventually, but, you know, spoiler, it's crave, it's long for. And so it's kind of borrowing a tense off of that. And so with this participle, we have to dig a little deeper, um, especially studying the original languages. We have to determine what's called actian sart, which is just a fancy, fancy word for how does the verb act in a certain position? And so is it an adjective? And so if, if so, is it describing sort of this action? Um, and there's different possible ways, but here it's not an adjective. As you see, it's sort of a verbal tense. And, you know, I brought a list with me and there's literally 16 different possible directions a verbal uh, participle can go, wow. which is really interesting. But I'll also say it's not that hard because there's a lot of clues. Um, and so what you're seeing here in the different um, translations are best guesses. So if you go with putting off, making it sound more with that ing, um, you're saying it's sort of like a means by which you crave something. So you crave by putting off something. Um, another guess, which you'll see in the NIV and the ESV, is put off. There's no ing there. And what they're doing there is something called attendant circumstance or leading something imperatival, Im- imperatively. Um, and basically what that means is like the two go hand in hand. 
And so what you're going to see is that the, the imperative long for, it's so easy to borrow um, with putting off because they just kind of go hand in hand. Like one goes with the other. Craving good things comes with putting off bad things. And, you know, if you're interested in this kind of debate, another great one is Matthew 28. Uh, go and make disciples of all nations. You've probably heard some teachings saying, hey, it's as you go, what they're doing, or as you're going, what they're doing is having this debate of, is it a means or is it, um, does it translate as an imperative? And basically what I would like to take away or what I'd like you to take away is they just go hand in hand. They're just so closely related. Um, one of the other things, if we're just going into the deep waters of language is just this, this idea of an aorist tense. And so this is a, a unique thing about the Greek language is that they'll look the way I learned it, it was like, if you're looking at a parade from a helicopter, you see the beginning, you see the middle, you see the end. And there's like no real definition of what. You just see that it exists. And so when they say put off, they're saying that, yes, maybe in the middle that you might, there, there might be this partnership of you doing it. But they can also account for that it's, there was a beginning to this. And so it kind of accounts for both that tension that we talked about last week of God being the source of it, but it's something that we're called to do ongoing. So one thing I notice in your Sunday sermon is that you don't spend a lot of time giving us some commands around these negative things that Peter tells us to put off. Is that connected to your understanding of how that verb functions in the sentence? Is is there anything you give us insight into in terms of what do we need to understand about this list of putting off disciplines or whatever it is? Yeah, there's a couple different theories I was wrestling with and it just made sense to kind of run through this because at face value, and I don't want to get too complicated because at face value, we kind of understand what these mean. And so it's, it's like, hey, I know what it means when I'm feeling malice or deceit or hypocrisy. But it's kind of interesting to d dig a little deeper, which is why we have the podcast in the first place. Um, I'd love to point out to people that in Romans 1, they have four of the five in the exact same order. Uh, James 1, it talks about, therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you, which sounds a lot like the themes we were talking earlier about how it sounds a lot like James. But the theory is this was just a general way to talk about the Christian ethic. And so they kind of wrap up these things. Uh, if you want more references of these general vice catalogs, I'll throw them in the study guide for our small groups this week. But it's just a general way of speaking. There's an also a theory that like, hey, these this was an issue that the community was dealing with, the church community. And so it could be other either way. But um, just in general, I'll fly through these words really quick. All malice, uh, that word is kakia, which for the Greek thinker was sort of like this wickedness or evil, sort of like how we think of good and bad, sort of evil, sort of this moral good and bad. Deceit, again, I'd love to point out that it's associated with community. So thinking about um, Isaiah 53, one of the passages that refers to Jesus a lot, he committed no sin, which is something we think about a lot. And then it says, nor was deceit ever found on his lips. So it's that personal, but also communal. It's like almost assumed. Hypocrisy, sort of this result of um, being deceitful with community. Envy, this result of feeling evil and being deceitful with community. And slander, kind of the ultimate um, result of both thinking evil on somebody and being deceitful with somebody. So really quickly, just a conclusion. I think the best way to think about it is the way 
that Romans six kind of talks about it. Just like you were born into this new life and that also constitutes a death, a death to your old self. And that's why I think there was a lot of talk around baptism around first Peter, because that image is so powerful that you're going down, you're dying to yourself. You're, you're raised up to new life. You've put away all these things. And that's kind of like our story as we move forward, which then Romans six talks about becoming like a slave of righteousness, a slave of God's righteousness, which is sort of our story from here on out is just constantly putting off the bad things and, and craving, longing for these good things that we'll talk about in the next question. And I'd love that. You know, it sounds like just tell me if I'm getting what you're saying wrong, but there's two kind of broad stroke ways to look at this. Either Peter is saying, hey, do this stuff, cast off all this bad stuff so that you can open yourself up to this world while now you're craving good stuff. Or he's saying it both happens all at once, right? You crave the good stuff, you drop the bad stuff. But either way, there's this kind of combo punch of, okay, let's move away from this. And now let's get at the main verb of this sentence, crave. Crave pure spiritual milk. Give us your take on pure spiritual milk. What is he talking about here when he uses this phrase, pure spiritual milk? Or as we see in other translations, pure milk of the word. What does he mean? Yeah, like you said, this is sort of his focus as the main verb here and putting off is sort of adopting the imperative sense from craving. And so there's a lot of fun conversations. I talked about it a little bit in my sermon of what are the good things that we can crave. But uh, just going deeper a little bit, there's some different things that, that come up in the debate of what is spiritual milk. And so first, milk was kind of seen in the, the language of Paul as sort of this disparaging like stab at, you know, people's immaturity or their apathy toward wanting to know more. So we see it in 1 Corinthians 3 where he says, you're just not ready for solid food yet. I'm just going to keep giving you milk because you're just not ready. You're dealing with lawsuits. You're saying, I follow Paul or Apollos. You're, you're dealing with sexual immorality. You're just not ready. And so there's this spiritual immaturity going on. You also see it in Hebrews 5 which talks about you no longer try to understand. And so I'm going to keep giving you milk, even though some of you should be ready for spiritual nourishment, this real solid food, which then proceeds into conversations about Melchizedek, which is super complicated. Um, and so Peter flips this on its head and says, hey, you know, when you're suffering, sometimes the best thing you could do is stick to the basics, which is a lot of what we've been talking about lately is just th rethinking your place in the story. Stay basic. And again, that goes back to a lot of my experience in sports. It's like when you're struggling, you just got to pick one thing and focus on it and focus on it hard because the rest will take care of itself. But stay simple. Crave the spiritual milk. Which then leads into the conversation about what exactly does it mean that this is spiritual milk? Because Peter here uses an interesting word, uh, logicon. And Danny, when you hear logicon, what is the word that you immediately think of? I think of logos or logic. Right. And so a lot of people have taken logicon to have some sort of relation to logos, sort of like this word milk. And so what they'll do is they'll say, okay, spiritual milk, logicon milk, word milk, word of God. Word of God through Bible, word of God through prayer, word of God through teaching, word of God through, you know, where's the best preacher out there? What's the best podcast? What's the best content that I can consume? The problem with that is I think there are better ways to say milk of the word in the Greek. There's also um, different one other place where he uses logicon, and that's in uh, Romans 12 verse 1. 
and it just doesn't fit. This is your true and word worship. It just doesn't seem right there. And so another possibility is what they chose here is spiritual. Um, spiritual meaning like metaphorical. The problem with this one is they could have used another word for this. They could have used pneumaticos, which is also spiritual. So there's something a little bit deeper going on. Plus, the metaphor is obvious here. We're not like getting actual milk from God. We're getting, the metaphor is like clearly understood. Again, this is your true and metaphorical worship. I just don't think that fits either. The last possibility is like rational or reasonable or like Romans 12.1 puts proper. Um, that might fit for Romans 12.1, but here it's like, this is your rational milk. And I don't know if that fits here. So there's been a lot of debate on this word, but what we come out with is something that sounds like milk of your truest nature, which I think goes back to the concept of being born again, which we've been talking about and harping on over and over. You're different and you need something of your nature, of something spiritual that you need to crave. And then again, that word crave is important because as infants, they don't need to be taught how to crave. They just do it. And so it's a question of, do we crave the milk that is true to our spiritual nature? And so, yes, that could be the word of God through prayer. That could be our personal time of devotion. But there's also a ton, again, of community-oriented things that fill us with the Holy Spirit. You know, Ephesians 5 talks about singing psalms with one another, singing hymns, um, make music and, and bringing people together. Um, and so things that are, are designed to be spiritual milk that are true to your new nature, I think is what's going for. And it's a, t- a conversation about, do we have this desire? Is it a, it's a heart issue at its core. Well, he finishes this concept of the pure spiritual milk that we're supposed to crave And then he throws that little phrase at the end, says, now that you've tasted that the Lord is good, how does that connect? Is that intentional? Is that just an add-on? What is he doing here? Yeah, I love Old Testament quotes because it just opens up a whole new window into what Peter is saying because this is an actual modification quote from Psalm 34. Um, And Psalm 34, the opening uh, descriptor, all the Psalms kind of have like a situation that David's writing in. He says, when David pretended to be insane before Abimelech, who drove him away, and he left. And this connects you to 1 Samuel 21, which is the story of David pretending to be insane before Achish, the king of Gath, and he's just on the run. He's being pursued by Saul. He's, he's fleeing the caves. He's, he's just in it right now. And what better psalm to refer to, to this group of people? than this psalm where David has to literally debase himself by acting insane in a foreign place. And he says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Now, a couple things to note here. The imperative that David uses, taste, has been changed to you have tasted. So you have something that David didn't have. You have seen that the Lord is good. Notice again, that, that phrase, taste and see, and see is taken away because you have seen. You've tasted, you've seen. And then that last part, the Lord is good. That word good is actually krestos, which is an interesting choice of word because he could have used a couple different words. He could have used agathos, which is like this benevolent good. He could have used kalos, which is again, that good 
versus evil concept, but he uses Krestos. And it's interesting because if you say it as a letter, you're thinking the Lord is good, but also it's very similar if you're hearing it to Christ, Christos, to Christos. Jesus is the Messiah, that you've tasted that Jesus is good. Jesus is the Messiah. I think there's an intentional play on the words there. That's really fun. If he's good, then he is our non-perishable source for this life. If he's Christ, then Caesar certainly isn't. As a person who is a Christian, listening to you talking, reading this passage, this is all super energizing for me, right? The I've tasted that Jesus is good. I love this idea of like, this world is so hard. Sometimes I wish I could just cast off all this bad stuff and just hunker down with something beautiful and pure and just grow in my salvation like a little baby. It's like, I feel like all wrapped up in a blanket and warm, (laughs) right? So I feel like as a Christian, this is super energizing, but part of what we've been doing in this podcast is taking a look at these concepts through the lens of a skeptic. And I feel like if I put on the skeptic's hat here and I'm listening to these ideas of craving the pure spiritual milk and being like a newborn baby. I am a little skeptical because I think of I think of Karl Marx, this idea of that religion is the opiate of the masses. And Peter is saying almost like, hey, I need you to just stop doing bad stuff and drink your little bottle and get better. <laughs> and it feels like there is no better passage that feels like religion is the opiate of the masses than crave a bottle and be like a baby and grow in your salvation. So how do you wrestle with that, right? What would you say to a skeptic? Where do you ground this in something energizing and big and beautiful and not in kind of placating people and putting them on the back shelf in society? Whenever scripture talks about acting in a certain way, one of the beautiful things is that there's always a therefore. There's always a therefore. And we talked about earlier in this podcast that whenever there's a therefore, we should stop, we should go back and what is the argument before? And so it might feel like a bait and switch, like the New Testament authors were just writing to the Christian church to act in a certain way. And actually what was on the cutting room floor for me this week was an idea that I was so influenced by this word, therefore, that I thought of doing a sermon backwards and just taking step by step by step backwards, looking for what is it that's grounding us in these actions? Last week, we talked about love, that we have purified our souls and you've been born again. Which begs the question, like, what purifies our souls and what is it that gives us new birth? Which should then drive us even further back. And that brings us to a conversation about setting your hope on the coming of Jesus, being holy so that you can live out a certain way. And the reason they give is by the precious blood that you've been redeemed by. And so again, where did that come from? And so you're already thinking, okay, I know where this is going. I know where this is going. But if you keep going backwards, now you're saying, praise God for our new birth and hopeful inheritance that we have. The means is through the resurrection of Jesus. And so you put these things together, purifying your souls, giving us new birth, redeemed by Jesus' blood, resurrection of Jesus. And you can't help but ground this on the cross, which then brings us all the way back to the very beginning. And I love doing this because um, just a review of what those verses says, you have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God, the father through the sanctifying work of the spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. That's first Peter chapter one, verses two and three right there. And so to me, I think Peter has gone all the way back up to saying, according to the foreknowledge of God, the father, that is the biggest possible story you can ground anything in. And so we're talking about like finding your place. 
the foreknowledge of God like encapsulates all of eternity. So that's like what we're grounding this stuff in. It's the biggest story possible. Through the sanctifying work of the spirit, I think that's the bigger story because the spirit is sustaining life itself and the spirit is moving. The spirit is, is doing things actively throughout history. And so you have this grand story of eternity. You have the spirit fueling our life here on earth. The third one, chosen to be obedient to Jesus Christ. We have, I, th I think of atonement theories where Jesus is our example. He recapitulated all of human life and he fulfilled the law. He lived a perfect life that we couldn't live He's now our supreme example of obedience here. And then finally, chosen to be sprinkled with his blood. I think of the penalty that had to be paid, uh, the purification with his blood, the, the ransom that was paid um, to redeem us. And I think once we have this grounding, this, this beautiful grounding on God's foreknowledge, on the Spirit's work throughout all human history, and that one event on the cross, then we work forward. And I think... Um, this was going to be my next step. I was going to work back and then I was going to work forward because then it's because of this, you have a living hope. You can look to the future, but for now live in the present, like be holy. So Peter kind of dances with the t this tension between a future and a present. And then finally we get to our passage today and he's really harping on the present. After thinking through this sort of backward and forward, I've, I've realized that that intro verse that maybe you kind of discarded, maybe you say, yeah, I know that, I know it's the Trinity. It gives you this unbelievable grounding for the rest of the scripture. And I think he does that intentionally because uh, we've been asking ourselves, what do we think when we think, hey, Peter is the guy who wrote this. And I've been thinking of Peter as a guy who just loves to take action. He wants to get right to it. Um, whereas Paul will take his time to explain the theology of it. Peter's like, no, I'm going to jump out and I'm going to walk on water and I'm going to follow Jesus and I'm going to be the first one. I'm going to lead. And, you know, sometimes that bit him where uh, he says, get behind me, Satan, but he's still willing to take the action. And so I see Peter grounding us in the very first verses of this book leading to action. And I think that's what he would say. He would say, hey, it's not an opiate. It's not something that is optional. It's something that Christ died for, that we could live this new life and, and we could begin to crave something. We could begin to long this lifestyle that only God can do, that only God can fuel us to, to then take those actions. I love that this concept of craving this milk is something that we can do and it does bring solace and comfort, right? Milk is a comfort food, right, to, for babies. And yet, in the context of the greater magnum opus that is this book, it's really the first step towards something much greater and bigger. And I love how we went backwards and forwards into it. What a beautiful first step and a comforting first step. And I feel comforted and energized just by thinking through that. Yeah. And one more thing I would add because it's so easy to internalize what we know about the cross and what we know about God's foreknowledge, what we know about the spirits working. It's so easy to internalize it. But going back to the very beginning of this episode, we have to account for the idea that he's placing these action steps in a conversation with community. So following the imperatives, it was set your hope, be holy. And then it started getting communal love, crave these things that are going to enhance the community. And then Finally, next week, we'll talk about kingdom of priests. And so 
it's grounded in the cross and it leads to action internally for ourselves. But this isn't a faith that is isolated. It's a faith that gets expressed in the church community. And so, as you can tell, I talk really fast. It's sort of hard to enunciate because I have so many ideas running through my mind. So I came up with uh, just a little quote that I just wrote to myself thinking through this. And here's how it goes. God could have instituted his law from the top down and forced us to do stuff. He didn't. In so doing, Christians are free from the tirelessness of strict adherence or the endlessness of subjective interpretations from generation to generation. Instead, Yahweh, our God, decided to write his law on the hearts of his church so that we Christians would burn with passion and desire to do what is good, to crave. Thus, when Christians come together as a church community, we enjoy our freedom from the burdens of the law, yet we can freely explore the cravings of the spirit placed in our hearts by God himself. That means that together, like the healthiest form of bottom-up peer pressure and social groupthink, you, plural, will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will, which comes from Romans 12, verse 2. Well, thanks, AJ, for joining us today for this conversation. The tables turn back next week, but thank you for setting up the trajectory where we're going. We're going to step right into this concept of community as we talk about being a kingdom of priests. So join us next week on the podcast. We'll see you guys then.